Hey, it's Shane here. Throughout the majority of my career, I spent thousands of hours on my technique to try to be as close to perfect as I could be. But the one thing I didn't work on was my mental skills. On the exact mindset I needed every ball to be able to access all of my technical skills that I worked so hard to develop. Well, I've recently released my book, Winning the Inner Battle, which has all of the information that you will ever need to deeply understand how you can create the correct mindset for you so that you can bring the best version of yourself every time you step out into the middle. Go to shamewatson.au to purchase a copy of Winning the Inner Battle now. It is available in paperback, ebook, or audiobook versions. Well, it's now time for your episode of Lessons Learned with the Greats. Enjoy. I mean, we used to go on a Sunday morning up to the hills in Christchurch, run the hills for a four, five, six Ks, come back, and then the boys would crack open a can of Canterbury Draft at the back end of it. You know, that's that's what it was like back in the day. And when I first started my first first class games, you know, the, the last one to hit the stump um, in warm-ups had to shotgun a can of beer at the end of a day's play. And that's, that's old school when I started, mate. So things are a bit different now, but... You know, the difference between what a professional looked like back then and what it is now, that's, it's like it's a different sport. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Lessons Learned with the Greats. I'm Shane Watson, and today I have the privilege to talk to a guy who absolutely loves terrorising the Aussies. This guy was the second fastest bowler to take 100 one-day international wickets. And if it wasn't for some of his injury setbacks, he would have gone down as one of the greatest fast bowlers of his generation. I had the absolute pleasure to face this guy at his peak, more so in one day cricket, and what a battle that it was. And then I had the great fortune to work very closely with him during my last season with the Sydney Thunder. Shane Bond, thank you so much for being on my show. <laughs> pleasure, mate. Bondy burst onto the scene during the summer of 2001-2002 against Australia, and no Aussie can ever forget that one day international where he bowled New Zealand to victory on Australia Day in 2002 with his 5 for 25. Injuries did curtail Bondi having a really long international career, but everyone has to listen to these incredible numbers which showed the impact that he had on the international stage in the games that he did play. In the 18 test matches that he played, he took 87 wickets at a crazy average of 22.09 with a strike rate of 38.7 and is the only modern-day cricketer, which is after the, 19, after the 1900s, to have a strike rate below 40. Just a couple more to go. I need to read these out, Bondi, <laughs> and I'll ask you about them. Um, in his 82 one-day internationals, he took an amazing 147 wickets at an average of under tw- or just under 21, which is just absolutely crazy. And to go with this, his strike rate was 29.2, which is 10th on the all-time list. And, yes, he also did play 20... T20 internationals taking 25 wickets at 21.7. Bondi, these numbers really put you in the top echelon of bowlers that have ever played the game. What what does come to mind when you hear these outrageously good numbers? Uh, <laughs> I was lucky. <laughs> I had an element of luck. I don't know, mate. I mean, I mean, you talk about that bursting onto the scene. I, I, um, I mean, I was a, I was a policeman. I was just. It's a working guy, really, who was playing cricket in the background when I got picked for New Zealand. Had no idea how fast I bowled because I'd never been on a speed gun. So I spent most of my first test just trying to beat the speed that I'd bowled the ball before and was excited to see actually how fast I'd bowled and really had no um, 
ambition when I played for New Zealand other than just to enjoy it because I didn't think it was going to last very long. Um, played a couple of tests in Aussie. I think I got three wickets at 100 apiece, came home, played Bangladesh, got a few more wickets and then got picked for that series in Australia. We're playing you blokes in um, South Africa and I thought I'm just going to go over here and get met because <laughs> you know, they're the best two teams in the world. And as it turned out, you know, I got some good advice just to run and just come hard Things went my way and my whole train of thought turned really to, Jesus, I, I, I'm just hanging in there to how I can compete. And if I actually put my mind to it and do some work, then then who knows what can happen. And, and Chris Cairns actually said to me, what, what's your goal? And I said, well, I'm just here to, I'm here for the ride really. And he said, well, why not just try to be the best bowler in New Zealand? And if you can do that, why not try to be the best bowler in the world? And I hadn't really thought about it. And um, after that series, I thought, well, I'll go away and I'll give it a crack. I'll set I'll set my goals high. I'll I'll chase two wickets a one day game, five wickets a test. I had some little statistical stuff that I tried to 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 chase, which sort of brought the best out of me and motivated me. And you know, aside from obviously big chunks out with the injuries, I pushed those those goals pretty hard. So I think just having goals and targets and reaching high really helped get the best out of myself. And um, when I finished, you you look back and you look at those numbers and and yeah, they're pretty good, but I think the, the thing I'm most proud of is I got the best out of myself and I helped the team win some games, which is the most important thing. Yeah, were you always someone who just naturally set goals or was that like Chris Cairns sort of really stimulating that that thought process? No, I, I did when I was yeah, – it's funny that there was a picture my, – my now wife has a picture of me lying on my bed at home when I'm 20, I think, and on the background there's a picture on the wall to say – you're going to make the Canterbury team, Canterbury A team, Canterbury team play for New Zealand. So there was a there was a goal there on my on my wall, wall. But I mean, deep down, I don't know if I really truly believed it. Um, mm. I really only got really specific when I started playing for New Zealand, and I used um, Gilbert Anoka, who's who's the mental skills general manager for um, the All Blacks now. He he was my sort of mentor and guy. I sat down with and formulated my goals and the guy who I sort of held myself accountable to. So we would meet every six weeks. This is what I'm going to do. He'd push me around. Yeah, okay. Now you've got to go away and do that work and, and be accountable to it. So he then was with, before rugby, he was with the New Zealand cricket team as well. So you know, he was he was awesome. And I think having someone to hold you to account um, was massive. And I suppose that's sort of one of the philosophies I have with coaching now because um, I think it's, it's so important. Yeah, Gilbert Anoka, wow. I've, I read the, his book um, that he wrote, Legacy, and that's one of the most incredible books that I've read. And to think that you had him to be able to sort of steer you through um, you know, how to be able to really push yourself to the limit and have someone who can hold you to account as well is, um, gosh, <laughs> it's pretty amazing. Yeah, he was gun. He was he was fantastic. Yeah, and I know, and I know Flem, um, uh, Stephen Fleming, who's um, yeah been on the lessons over the greats as well, talks so highly of him, of him as well. Of was someone who's really able to you know challenge him in different ways to be able to really see you know, see how good he could be. Yeah, I think that's the that's the I suppose now as as I talked about coaching is what you're trying to do is is to try to take people to levels that perhaps they didn't think they can go to. And I think that well, that's what that's what Gilbert did to me. That's what Stephen did for me as a captain. Is um, and some of those senior players around you is push push you further than what you think you can go. And and if you have a little bit of success and get a little bit of confidence, then sometimes there's no limit. So, but it's important to have good people around you to help you with that stuff. And, and I certainly did. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, you had a lot of amazing highlights during your career, and one that stands out to me the most was your 
six for 23 against the Aussies in the 2003 World Cup, which gave New Zealand a chance to be able to chase those runs down. What do you remember about that spell? Because that was, that was incredible, incredible to be able to watch. I remember when we went into that game, obviously Australia were playing well. Um, we, we decided we were going to bat first. We thought that was the best way. And we'd, we'd played pretty well against Australia batting first. So we won the toss. I walked off, took my boots off, and Flynn walked in and said, we were bowling. He just decided he'd change his mind. I said, no, nah, I've got a gut feel with bowling. So number one, I was pissed off. <laughs> so for the first over that I bowled, I bowled rubbish and I was muttering and murmuring to myself in that spell. And then bowled the first ball, I sort of got on target. Hados nicked it. And then sort of the rest, um, how would I describe it? It's like you've, you know, and you'd know as a player, you visualise playing at your absolute best and everything going your way. Visualisation's a fancy word of saying dreaming. And that day, it was it was as if the dream was unfolding, um, and there was just no stopping you. And um, when I, I remember when I finished with those figures, and I knew once I'd finished, I sort of took a moment and thought, "Shit, I've knocked Scott Styrus off number one spot for New Zealand," which was which, which was number one was great because he he should no way have that spot. <laughs> and then you know, Aussie were eighty for seven. And I was thinking, "Jesus, we're in the we're, we're going to make the semi-finals here." Um, and then sort of four hours later, we'd had our ass handed to us and the sort of the performance, the, uh, I was happy with the performance, but I was so deflated because we'd lost. Because ultimately you want performance losses like that to, to help you win. And then a few days later, we got knocked out of the tournament. So look, personally, it was, it was amazing at the time when it was all unravelling. But I think the fact that we got dicked um, and knocked out you know, a couple of days later, it was sort of, that, that was the most disappointing element of it. Yeah, that's a that's the beauty and the and the downside to playing a team sport is you can have you know yeah, one of the most incredible incredible um, special moments of your career, but then you know you're there to because it's a team sport you want to win like that's the reason why you play. <laughs> so on the flip yeah, side, so it's so deflating. The and yeah, although there's, there's sort of an inner inner delight, it's sort of overshadowed by the. I mean, we were completely distraught after that game, you know, because we we let our opportunity slip and. That was the overwhelming feeling was disappointment rather than anything else, which is, you know, when, it, when it's reversed and you have a day like that and you win, then you sort of get, you get the high and then you go beyond it. It's, you know, it's, it's amazing, as you know. So, yeah, that, that day was, yeah, for the first half, it was one of the best days of my life. The second half was one of the worst. <laughs> <laughs> All right, while, while, we're, while we're on the topic of the best moments of our life, um, <laughs> <laughs> you had a lot of very like incredibly special moments as we just touched on on the cricket field uh, during your career. So, is there another moment that really stands out to you um, the most during your career? Yeah, I think when we we won a Test match in the West Indies, New Zealand, we we always talked about creating history um, as a team, and we went over there in two thousand and two, and we won a Test match in Barbados, um, and we were the first team New Zealand team to win a Test match there. So, to be part of something where you know I grew up. Um, watching the West Indies of the 80s and 90s, the Viv Richards and all that, those bowlers, and how intimidating and sensational they were. And then to go over there um, and win when New Zealand teams had gone over there and get, got pantsed every time, you know, and bowled out for not much. To win, that, that, was, that was sensational, just to do something that hadn't been done before and be part of a team. So they were always the standouts when you did little things like that, whether playing or coaching, when you sort of created bits of history, it was that was one of the coolest ones. Yeah. Yeah. And again, like this just keeps coming back to like, you know, everyone just about that I've talked to on, on this podcast, every, all their special moments that really stand out to them is all a team thing. 
It's actually yeah. the things that really stand out because that's a beauty of playing cricket because it's a team sport. Yeah, there's an individual, of course, there's an individual component to it, but those are the things that really stand out is those team, team amazing achievements and creating history, like you said. Um, yeah, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing. That's why we're so fortunate to be able to play the game of cricket where you can bring all your mates together with you. Yeah, 100%. Uh, I think, yeah, you know, as, as you love sharing the individual success of your teammates. Um, and that's a big part of it. It's a big part of coaching to help people have those moments. But the, the, the best players and all the players I talk to say they, they would give up an individual accolade to win the trophy at the end of a tournament or something. Uh, I think that's, there's nothing that beats that feeling of winning a series or a trophy or a World Cup. Um, yeah, it's that, that's why you play. And when, you, when you're dreaming as a kid of bowling the last over or winning the World Cup, you know, it's, you, there's a little bit of the personal glory but it's about winning with your mates and winning for your country and and you know enjoying the ride and all the all the experiences I've had that are the absolute um most the ones that are the most fun are the ones around the team element um and winning winning with your with the guys who you you care about so yeah that, I don't think that changes yep and talking about winning <laughs> gosh um, you, you're now one of the best, uh, world's best bowling coaches and <laughs> Mumbai Indians have experienced <laughs> your skills with that. Gosh, so that's, well, it's mainly Mumbai or CSK, whichever one it is at the moment, but, um, yeah, it's been incredible, mate. Um, then you've also moved on to the head coaching realms as well with, um, the Sydney Thunder. So your insights are going to be, are going to be incredible from a playing point of view, but then also from a coaching perspective to really be able to dig into those sides of things. So we'll start with the skills side of, um, of cricket. So from a bowling point of view, was there one specific technical, technical component that really stands out to you that you worked on and, and developed? So from that moment on, you knew if you bought that every time, you're going to be close to your best. Yeah, there's, there's probably a combination of things. It's funny how you talk about technique. I reckon it took me until I was 21 to work out I was an in-swing bowler. Um, you know, you would have coaches offer you various tips. And I was at the Cricket Academy bowling one day and suddenly realised the ball was swinging and had no idea. I tried to bowl outswing from 17 onwards. I could never hit the seam. Mm. The reason was because I wasn't really set up for that. Um, and then having, having had... Um, serious back problems and having to rebuild my action, it gave me a real insight into just the fundamentals of, of bowling and what worked and what didn't work for me. When it came down to its, um, its simplest, probably three three or four things was, number one, I had to breathe and relax. That was the first, first and foremost. Mm-hmm. Second thing mentally was that I just couldn't go trying too hard to get wickets. So it was all about just bowl the ball. I can't control what's going to happen. But if I just focus on bowling the ball where I want it, then the rest will take care of itself. And then the third part was just, um, I described it like I never had a real specific spot that I looked at on the pitch when I bowled, but I just, when, I, when I ran down and I bowled, if, if, if it looked, if the other end looked like a photograph, so it was like someone had taken a snapshot and it was still, I knew my head was still and I, could, I had control. If it was wobbling around, then I didn't have it. So it was as simple as that, keep my head still, breathe, and just worry about putting the ball where I want it. And that's as... That's as as uh, simple as it was for me. Um, and then you move into the coaching side and you go, well, I think the stuff that's relevant for the elite athlete is the same stuff that you talk about for a five-year-old. And so and no different in any sport. So what do you have to do as a bowler? Well, you generally got to run in straight. You sort of got to accelerate towards the target. Your head's got to go up the target um, and you've got to follow through. And if you do those things, whether you're seven or whether you're 27 in a, a, a professional then you've got a fairly high chance of um, of being successful. So 
I'm trying to overcomplicate it because, as you know, every bowler does it different, but they're probably the starting points for, for any bowler for me. Okay, one thing that really stands out to me there is you talk about like your head being still. And you know, most people and all, all batsmen always say how important it is for their head to be still as a ball's bowled. But it is also so important as a bowler to be able to make sure your head's still and you feel like your head's going directly towards your target. Um, to be able to give yourself the best the best chance. 100%. I think, I think batting or bowling, it's exactly the same. And you'll always have bowlers who are unique, who's, I mean, you've got James Anderson for a period of time, he's not even looking down the other end, or Makaira and Tini who are sort of running off towards third man. Mm. There's, there's blokes who do it differently, but that's the same in any sport. There's batters whose head falls over and they're still incredible. But I think fundamentally, you know, for 90%, that sort of whole true so that big thing on top of your shoulders is the it's probably the the key thing and probably the biggest inhibitor not just your the brain inside it but the fact that it just wobbles around or tips over and it's so heavy Mm. yeah exactly um and you (laughs) talked about about rebuilding your bowling technique what what were the like one or two like key things that you had to work on to be able to try and unload your back because obviously you had a few few back injuries. So was there a couple of really important things that you worked on at training and and rebuilt to be able to try and unload your back as much as you could? Well, we, we, I you, normally you would say if you read sort of stuff around cricket bowling, they say you try and get your feet and your hips and your shoulders aligned, and if you if you do that, you're you're a pretty good chance of staying injury free. The, the interesting thing for me is I had my back foot landed side on as if I was a side on bowler, but my hips are actually open. So, and then when I was having back injuries, uh, my feet were side on, my hips were open and my shoulders were side on. So that was caused the sort of the, that sort of effect. Mm. Um, and I tried to get my hips in alignment to, to a side on position and just simply couldn't do it. So for me, then it was simply aligning my shoulders and my hips and just allowing my feet to land, land where they wanted to. Um, and then, you know, I was one of those bowlers whose hands sort of came way up over their head. And so I had to ensure that I didn't pull it too far. So they pulled my shoulders around and I could bring it up, but not around. And I experimented with coming in here and keeping it in tight. But I had to find a way to bide time to get myself into a position where I got all my power. So in the end, it was run straight, allow this hand to come up, but hold it, and then just allow my shoulders to stay open. And if I did those things, then... I, I was in a position that I could um, bowl fast. So it, we did a lot of experimenting. I was um, actually Ross, Alex Ross's dad, who was a coach at New Zealand Cricket, and Dale Hadley. They were two guys who we, we did a lot of drill stuff, a lot of experimenting. It was it was really interesting and fascinating stuff. And we we tried stuff, binned it off, and then just came to this point where nah, we're happy with this. We And I made a decision to run with it, and it, and it worked out pretty good. So... Um, but it was a hell of an interesting process to go through. And how long for you was that? Was that process? Was it on like ongoing, like throughout your career, or was it more so one period of time um, that you really just sat down, broke it down, and just realised those couple of you know key technical things that you knew you had to commit to um, and work on, and then and then just let yourself go after that. Yeah, it was I think I was post back surgery, had sort of okay. three fractures on the bounce and thought something's obviously got physically got healed up but something else had to change so I had the time to sit down and think about it and really look at the the video analysis which wasn't as comprehensive as it is now you didn't have the iPhones and the the, the instant feedback sort of stuff that you have these days um, looked at it and thought actually this I've just got to make some changes here and so as I said we tried with the hips aligning first and then we went with the shoulders and once 
I think once I was happy, and the decision is always going to be made by a player, especially an international player, then I was happy to commit to it. And if it didn't work, well, that's that's my fault. But we, it certainly wasn't just setting out on, we're going to, this is it. We experimented, we tried some stuff until I was happy that yeah, this was the way to go. And it turned out it worked out. It worked out. It might not have, but it worked out. And I was happy with the decision, um, as I said, because we tried other stuff and it seemed to be the one that was working best for me. Yeah, and the, the, there's a couple of things that continue. Like I, I just I find absolutely fascinating. And one is around you said about like being able to your bowling your bowling arm to sort of come up around around like around near the back of your head because that actually your jump was your way to be able to like harness all of your energy and all the power to then to be able to really just power through the crease. And that was really like for me watching you and then facing you as well, that was very like obvious, your big, your jump to be able to just align, get all your timing right to be able to then just like release the power that's inside of you. Yeah. And you know, I know that there's, there might be what is called a biomechanically technical, you know, and people like people staying in tight and that, but mm. what I've learned is just other people find ways to get their bodies into a position mm. to, you know, to maximize their power or to get the timing right. Um, Tim Southey comes up here, now, Matt Henry comes up here and they'll talk about the same stuff that they, they want to control that hand, but it's important for them just to get that timing right. And often that's just come through mimicking players when they were younger um, and just having that natural body movement. So it was no different for me. I wanted to be Richard Hadley, you know, so my hand came up like Paddles' hand um, and I could never shake that. And I think I was about 17 the first time I saw myself on video and I thought I looked like Sir Richard and, just looked nothing like it. it was thought, what is that? <laughs> and so I think I think for the modern player now and kids now, because video is available on a phone, you can very quickly uh, learn a little bit more and become much more self-aware about your technique than you could in my day because video just simply wasn't around. So you were sort of relying on the eye of a coach, um, whereas by the time I'd got to, had to rebuild it, I had that technology and sort of could rely on, um, not only my coach, but my own eyes, I could see it consistently and was able to, um, was able to fix it. Yeah. And the, absolutely. And the, the other thing that I find absolutely fascinating is that you committed to being in, an in-swing bowler. And that's so many people out there is like, well, if I'm a fast bowler, for me to be effective, I have to be able to swing the ball away from a right-hander or right and into a left-hander, which all you need to, you need to be able to swing the ball. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't matter which way it doesn't matter which way it goes. But so as you said, like you were growing up thinking, well, I have to be able to swing the ball away. But it's what you're in the end, it's what your natural technique and your natural skill allows the position to get into. So if it is the ball swing in and you're able to bowl, that's the most comfortable for your body. That's what makes you bowl the fastest because you're a you're just yeah, you know, your your natural sort of skill, then people have to realize that all you need to do is swing it. It doesn't matter which way. It doesn't matter which way. And that was something that, yeah, for you to be able to commit to that, that's going against the grain in a way. Um, how, how did you sort of work through that? I just thought it was, I thought, well, it's just, I'd rather move the ball than not. I had, I had bowlers bowling at the other end who were getting shitty because I weren't hitting the seam. And so you'd get the swing bowlers down the other end just swearing at me when they got the ball at the end, start of an over, and had yeah. chuff, scuff marks out all over the, <laughs> over the leather. And then that was my experience when I started my first class career. I had a swing bowler who played for New Zealand called Warren Wisniewski used to just blow up because I couldn't hit the scene. And mm. it took me, you know, I started at 21 and discovered that winter that I was trying to swing the ball the wrong way. Mm. And so it was, well, number one, I hit the scene. Number two, it swung. <laughs> and I was quick enough to cause problems if it swung. So, you know, all I had to then discover was one that went straight. 
and if I could bowl a straight ball, which I could, yeah. I, even though I didn't have the steam, then I could be effective. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly right. And that's and that's the the commitment and that's where so many coaches out there, and this is for the young kids especially, is it's all about the perfect sort of outswinger. But it's just it is, as you said, it's been able to swing the ball, whichever is your natural way of doing it, and then just and letting yourself go with that. And then you said, like just the natural variation of keeping it of, of actually making the ball go straight, <laughs> that's incredibly effective. That's the thing you do cop players who who bowl in swing go, I've just got to bowl the outswing and the first question is well, why are you are you as good at in swing bowler as you can be at the moment? And there's no harm in then experimenting to try to bowl it, but be as good as you can be, and just find other ways in and around it. Um, you know, the James Andersons of these worlds are unique. You know who can mm. do what he does at will. You know they're they're unbelievably skilled, but there's not too many guys like that who can go around and just shift the ball off the straight both ways with the control that James has. So mm. um, yeah, if you can do as long as you can move the ball. Um, and it, for me, it moved a lot. So if, if it could shift, um, then, then you're always going to cause problems. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, what was your fitness regime like um, that you knew got the best out of your body? Was it was it more um, was it bowling fitness? Was it running? Was it um, like getting into the gym and doing strength work? What was the thing that really you found worked the best for you to to get the best out of what you had? I reckon I had a majority of my injuries later in my career because I was lazy when I was younger, sort of in my late teenage years. I just didn't simply train hard enough. And because of it, I got back problems. With that, not being fit and having a poor technique, my back consistently broke. So I ended up being in a position where I just didn't have a grounding. I didn't have a base of bowling. Um, And so when I actually then started bowling really fast, um, I was playing for New Zealand, so you're having the grind of international cricket without the base of bowling behind you. And I was never, I was always um, explosive and fast, but I never had a big cardio engine. So really my focus was trying to build that engine up as much as I possibly could. So I would rely on sort of double, two to three times a day doing cardio sessions. So one thing I did do was box. I did boxing training sort of four to five days a week for an hour and a half. Um, and in and around that, I would, you know, obviously do your, your weights, but run and try to have multiple sessions per day doing cardio stuff. Um, and I still would no, be nowhere near as fit, fit as some other blokes in my team, but I just had to really work at it, um, which I think enabled me to bowl faster for longer. If I look back now, um, I probably didn't do the consistent strength training um, that I should have done because, you know, bowling at my speed is so powerful, I probably needed to be physically stronger. So I did weights, but I probably didn't do heavy enough or enough of them, particularly as the season, as I was in season, tended to pull back a bit. So I know guys now do a lot more of that stuff in season, and I think it's important for survival. So I just tried to be as fit as I possibly could. I was do my sprint training, yep, do some resistance training. But if, if I wasn't fit, I really suffered, particularly when I went to countries that were really humid because, um, you know, where I'm from is really dry. I found Sri Lanka – um, and places like incredibly uh, taxing to play. And so I, I had to be fit just to survive in those places. So that's where I put my focus. Yeah. And that's, a, I suppose the, the luck of the draw in a way, like I said, I, I, I think about like my coming through the, the ranks like I did. Um, and even from a, like a 12 and 13 year old, it was all like we did, you know, when, cause I was in, a, I suppose the pathways, there was a fitness base, there was a strength base that, you know, you had guiding on the way. Um, and I suppose, 
what you've mentioned there, it, it makes me well realize that I should never have taken that for granted because it, it meant that I had more of a, even though I still got injuries and I still had a lot of injuries, but it gave me a little bit more of a, of a, of a foundation. But as you said there, like it wasn't until you probably in your, your nine, like 19 or 19 or 20 before you realize, oh, okay, I need to really try and build this base. Yeah. I, I mean, I just played rugby in the winter um, and that probably gave me a fitness base, gave up rugby because I was a bit worried about getting hurt. And that's when my fitness fell off. I mean, Canterbury were the powerhouse of cricket here back in the late 90s. And they actually employed a couple of school teachers to run some fitness sessions. And that was considered professional back in the day. I mean, we used to go on a Sunday morning up to the hills in Christchurch, run the hills for a four, five, six Ks, come back, and then the boys would crack open a can of Canterbury draft at the back end of it. You know, that's that's what it was like back in the day. And when I first started my first, first class games, you know, the, the last one to hit the stump, um, in warm-ups, had to shotgun a can of beer at the end of a day's play. That's <laughs> it's old school when I started, mate. So yeah. things are a bit different now. But you know the difference between what a professional looked like back then and what it is now. That's it's like it's a different sport. Yeah, mm, yeah. <laughs> that didn't that didn't happen to the Mumbai Indians. <laughs> shotgun. Smacking <laughs> <laughs> before the game started, just trying to hit that stump. I can't drink. <laughs> It's massive, massive heat on his warm-ups. <laughs> um, Bondi, now you're one of the leading coaches around the world. So from a coaching perspective, was there one like major situation that really stands out in your mind that, that you learned from? It was a situation that arose that you, you were trying to have one, one effect and it sort of went the other direction. So now if that situation arises again, you will, you'll go, okay, well, that, that situation didn't work the way I handled that. So next time I'll go, I'll go this way. Is there a situation like that that's um, popped up in your coaching career? Yeah, I think there's a, there's a, when you look back, there's a number of situations. I suppose that's the nature of being a player. You just make mistakes as coaches. You, sometimes you try to appease players and you try to promise or offer them something out of, a, of a, from a good place mm. and end up having to backpedal. So you piss players off and you're, you know, you sort of look like you're, you're talking shit. Um, look, there, and, and I think that's not only with the players, it's with the management, the people you deal with and the coaching staff. I think as a young coach, you definitely come in with a strong opinion and you can come in too hot sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, in hindsight, you look back and go, yeah, I probably could have reined it back in. So when you get now, having done it for 10 years, when you have young coaches come in, you can say, hey, I know where you're coming from, but mm-hmm. you just need to, to rein it back. Um, no, I think that's the one thing, uh, you know, I know players can be tough on coaches, but one thing I do know, and, and over here I see you know, I see a new coach come into first class set up and then they're, you know, you hear whispers that the players aren't happy and they want the coach gone. You go, coaching's like playing. It takes time to develop. Mm-hmm. The, the longer you do it, if you've got a philosophy, clear philosophy, then you'll get better and better. You'll get better at managing people, reading situations. So you just need time because... You don't want to bin off every every twenty year old player who's making mistakes. You know, it's, and as you know, you, the way you play at twenty compared to thirty is streets apart, and you're so much better. And I think that's no different in coaching. So the important thing, like a player, is having the mentors and the people around them, a, a young coach to help them, to develop them, to point them in the right direction, to give them feedback. Um, and sometimes, whether it be coaching or playing, it's hard to get people who will give you honest feedback. Mm. There's a lot of backslappers out there, mm. um, but people actually tell you what they think and. Um, how it is is really important yeah so then from a coaching mentor perspective is there is there one or two that you've you've really um seeked out 
or just been fortunate enough to sort of work around that has been like a maybe like a you know, a father figure in regards to being able to you know, uh, develop your coaching skills. Yeah, look, there's a, there's a couple. Um, John Bracewell was one, as you know, mm, came over yeah, with Braces. Thunder. Um, yeah. And, yeah, 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 and um, you know, as a as a when I took the job with the Thunder's first time, so he'd coach at that level. I wanted someone to be able to tell me exactly how it was, and I mm. and I learned a lot from from braces and got a lot of the philosophies from the stuff that he did. Um, and I'll go into that a little bit more. And another one was my high school physique teacher. I had when I was in the fir- my first year at high school, he ended up being the coach. He was a coach himself and ended up being the coach development officer at New Zealand cricket. He's not there now, but I still use him to sit down, set goals, run through plans. How does it look? And he would question it, pull it apart, offer advice. And I still do that stuff with him. His name's Richard Smith. So those two guys I still speak to and talk to and uh, about coaching because I think you still need those those sounding boards and um yeah that there you I think as you go through your playing career you have different coaches who have different influences and you there are bits of their coaching styles that you like that you don't like and I was doing that when I was playing sort of formulating going I like that but I don't like that and if I when I coach I'm going to pull those parts in and I suppose that's the start of uh, putting together your coaching philosophy and how you're going to how you're going to do things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And mentors, whether in any in any walk of life, mentors are so important, and especially ones who give you the the honest feedback. As you said, there's a lot of like backslappers out there who just give you the the feedback that is nice. But it's actually the ones who are going to yeah come from the right place. So they're to challenge you to be able to go, okay, well, you know, let's we can work we can work on these things. So uh, it's it's a it's a powerful thing because a lot of people you know don't actually try and seek out those people, they seek out the backsliders. <laughs> well, I found I found there's a couple of things I don't know how you found in your career. I found the better I got, the less coaching I got. It was almost particularly when I went back to first class cricket. It was almost uh, well, he knows what he's doing. We'll just let let him be. Mm. And I and I found in reflection. I think people could have got more out of me if I'd been pushed harder. And that's what that's one thing Brace has always said is he pushed my buttons. And he called me out if he thought my performance wasn't up to it. Um, and it, I hated it at the time, but I, I actually felt that, yeah, shit, I, I actually needed that. So it's one of the philosophies I take. I'm going to challenge people. And the second part was I went the, I, I went the opposite when I started. As I decided because I got no coaching as I got older and got better, I was going to spend my time with the best players, that the best players will win you games. And so if I can get the best out of the best players, then the team's got a higher chance of being successful. And if I push them and motivate them, they will drag the younger blokes up with them, purely by example or sort of filtering down the stuff that I'm trying to do. So no different. I don't do any different now, whether I'm at Mumbai or wherever, that I spend the bulk of my time with the best players, trying to push them, trying to get more out of them, trying to break their game down, getting improvement, because I think that has an impact on the, the rest of the team if you do that. It's amazing philosophy because a lot of coaches actually stay away from the best players. As you said, like most of them just stay stay clear and go, "Oh, you're, you're sweet, you'll be you'll be okay." But what? But absolutely, the, like the best players in the team, there are little ways that you can help them just continue to sort of you know push push them to the to the limit of what they've got. And as you said, then everyone else comes along for the for the ride as well. That's a well, it's, yeah, it's an amazing philosophy. Yeah, because that's a ta- that's probably the the most challenging skill <laughs> is trying to coach the best players. <laughs> when you're looking at the Bolts and the Boomers and the Mitchell, there's, there's the, the, I mean, the, 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 they have the same uh, doubt at certain times. That they make the same mistakes as other players. They may not do it as much, but they do do it. And they still have little holes in the game and blind spots. And 
the, the job is to find those and to um, tweak them and still looking for improvement in those blokes. And I know the guys that I work with are still talking about mental process and, and, and developing game plans. They've got little technical things that they know. The, the top players know those technical things, but I'm there to, to keep an eye on it and spot stuff uh, when they're in the heat of the battle as well. So it still makes it fun when you see, you know, you make those tweaks. And people won't see them, but when you make them and, and offer them something and it comes off, then that's still just as exhilarating as helping an 18-year-old, you know, who's just come on the scene. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it's incredibly powerful. Okay, we're going to move on to the, the mental skills side of things. Um, and I, I find this, fa- I do find this side of things absolutely fascinating. But then, you know, with your experiences you've had um, yourself um, and also with Gilbert and Oka, I'm, I'm really looking forward to hearing your, your more of your perspective on this. So um, from a mental skills point of view, were you always built a certain way? Or was there like a couple of things that someone like Gilbert actually helped you with to be able to develop, to be able to give yourself the best chance of being at your best as, as much as you could? Uh, I think as I, like people talk about mental hardness or toughness and look, I think there's an element of that, but I, I think there's like, I'm a massive believer that it's, it's under-resourced and under-talked about sometimes in our game, the mental side. I mean, most of the stuff I do coaching is here. It's not, yeah, yeah. I mean, the easy stuff to do is a technique because you can see it, but most of the stuff I'm dealing with the elite players is mental yeah. oh, and yeah. talking to them around process and headspace, giving them clarity about what they what they need to do when they take the field. So for me, my confidence and mental toughness, which is a nonce, just came through very thorough planning, commitment to a plan, knowing that I'd worked and took the mindset that when I took the field, I'd prepared perfectly, was ready to go, deserved success and was going to get it. And, and it was if I'd taken shortcuts, then I knew I'd taken shortcuts. And, and then, you know, the, the mental, you know, everything can unwind or for me. So I think that was a big part of my success was because I worked so hard and I, I thought that I deserved it. Um, so again, as a coach, you're trying to push people to, 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 for me to have a really clear plan, not just training for training's sake, but be really clear about how you're going to get better. How can I help you get better? Work bloody hard. Have really clear plans when you're going to play. And then all you got to do is go out and do that, train that plan, and then you go out and, and play that game. And that's the simple part. And then in and around that, you're trying to build those mental routines when you're standing at the top of your mark and you've been bashed over your head for six. Is how do I push pull myself back to being centered so I'm not thinking about the six that's gone over my head or what if the next ball goes for six? I'm purely focusing on what do I have to do right now. So that's another part of the, my coaching philosophy is trying to tell the or and still processing the guys that I don't care what's happened or what might happen. How do we as a group or as you as a bowler stay present? And it's just about what I have to do this book. Um, yeah. And that's, it sounds really easy when you talk to players, but it's probably the hardest skill in cricket, yeah. particularly from a bowling point of view. So everything, as you know, if the Thunder was trying to keep guys in that position, using the captain like yourself, using a teammate, um, training under pressure, to be able to get yourself used to training your mind in preparation that when you find yourself in that moment, you can make a, a, a good decision. Because most of the time, you know, good players can execute, but it's the decision-making or the stress of the situation that where everything goes down the dunny. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. And what the one thing you said there from a coaching perspective, which is yeah, – Absolutely spot on. And I'm so, I'm, I absolutely believe it is from a coaching perspective, the technical side of things, it's, it's what you see. So that's the easiest, that's the easiest side of things. And majority of coaches that I always work with just about nearly just about everyone, just about it's all what they can see. 
very rarely does a coach actually go, where's your mind at? Where was it at? And where was it at in the lead up to it when you're trying to execute your skill? Because if your mind's not exactly where it needs to be, if it's not present and you're thinking about the past of, um, you know, just being launched over your head or the future, then, you know, that's actually such a, it's a, it's a tough skill. It sounds so simple, but it is so, it's a, it's a hard skill to train. Yeah. For me, techniques, it's more down the lower end for my coaching stuff. I, mm. I try not to worry about that too much. We've got those basic points that I talked about, but the rest of it is around the stuff that you talked about. I mean, you have players who are technically minded who get into the nets, whether with bat or ball and just focus on technique. And, mm. and I say to bowlers, the game's not played at your end, it's played at the other end. Mm. So you have to be, you have to be really clear about where you're trying to put the ball, how you're going to do it, and then respond to how the, the batsman plays to you. Because if you're focused on this end, you're never going to get any better. Mm. And so it's about breaking your trainings into parts where you can go, yeah, I'll focus on the technique for this bit, but then I've, I've got to get into the battle and I've got to prepare my mind for the battle so that when I take the, take the field, I'm, I'm ready and expecting anything that can take place and I can deal with it. And you can put strategies in and around that, but that's the game. You know, you have to be able to deal with pressure um, and you have to know how to, how to get yourself out of sticky situations. So yeah, that's, where, that's where I focus a lot of time around that sort of stuff with players, which is really fun. I mean, but as I said to you, the, even the, the very best in the world um, still have doubt. They still go through those challenges of not thinking about taking too many wickets or their confidence is high or their ego takes over. All those sort of it always happens. So you're trying to pull them back to what makes them successful. Absolutely. No matter how high achiever someone is, everyone mentally sort of t- sabotages their own performance just about the very similar way. Whether it's is it doubting doubting something or <laughs> letting ego taking over, it's you know varying degrees of different things. But everyone does it the same way, and it's the real deep understanding of how to how to get at it, how to get out of your own way. Um, and it's a, it's a beautiful thing because it's, as you said, it's, it's untapped. It really is. The mental skills coaching side of things is, is it's untapped in, well, with my experience in and around cricket as well. So that's, yeah, incredibly powerful. Yeah. I think, I think with my link with Gilbert, I, did, I spent a lot of time with Kerry Evans too. And Kerry did a lot of work with the All Blacks and winning in and around the, I think the 07 and the 2011 World Cup. Yeah. Or the 15, might have been 15, 2011, 2015. Mm-hmm. And he talks, he's the redhead, bluehead. And, and, and the stuff that he talks about is uh, how to stay on task, how to, how to, how to um, take away the fantasy of what might happen and stick to um, this is what I need to do right now and having strategies to control your, control your brain. And I've spent a lot of time with him talking to him about that stuff and find it fascinating. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm a huge believer in that, that the game, if mm-hmm. you can do that, then you, you, you're set up to be successful. Yeah, yeah, completely agree. And the one thing you said earlier is around like when you're at your when you're at your absolute best, it was one thing was just bowling the ball, the best ball that you possibly could, and not not think about and not worry about the results. And that's that's incredibly powerful what you said there. Because most people when they go out to play, whether it's batting or bowling, they're so worried about results. They're worried about the outcomes. As you said, like in the end, you you aren't you aren't in control of those outcomes. All you are is control of what comes down your way um, to be able to do that to the best of your ability, and then and then whatever happens happens. So, talk to me more about that because that's incredibly powerful to be able to stay present and not be focused on outcomes, which is where stress and anxiety and worry and everything sort of <laughs> really starts to ramp up. I think that's the sometimes that's the nature of especially 
when you have success. Um, like I obviously started, and you would know this, you start your international career, it goes okay, then you, you have a period of success, so expectation from people sort of ramps up, mm-hmm. and you can then try to live up to that expectation. And it's all around results. I've been getting lots of wickets. I've always got to get lots of wickets. And so I think you, you suddenly learn that the wickets just come if, – if I'm a good enough – I was a good enough player that if I bowl well, wickets were going to come. I just mm-hmm. had to bowl well enough for long enough. Mm-hmm. And if I pulled myself back to that mindset and started forgetting about what everyone was saying, then the results would take care of itself. Mm-hmm. And I still find now, even with um, you know the, the Jasper Boomers and Trent Bolt, that's a key thing that they find is – you know, the ego can take over. They want to go to a tournament and dominate. And after a while, they suddenly pull themselves back to, hang on a second. If I just focus on doing my job, the rest will take care of itself. So it's a theme that runs through um, all for all cricketers, I think. And I, I think it's the same for coaching. If I come in and coach for my job, um, and I'm so worried about not having my job, I'm, the players will know and I'm buggered. So I've never, never coached for my job. It's one thing I, I just... I do what I think's right. I do it from a good place. If I can't coach or I don't have any the te- technical expertise, I'll get binned off because that'll be feedback to whoever it is. But I, but I don't play the game. All I can do is support and trust that if I do a good job, I'll, I'll either keep getting jobs or I'll keep my job. Um, and I think you've sort of got to do that as a player. You've got to forget that your job's up, your contract's up. You've got to focus on just doing your job, playing. Um, and, as, and if you prepare well, um, then you've got a high chance of going out there and, and getting it done. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because as you said, like once expectations come on as well, then everyone expects and you expect your, yourself to be able to dominate and perform every single time and get the outwork, get the results you're looking for. But it's, the world doesn't work like that. It's more so just bringing the best version of you. And then as you said, then, then the results look after themselves, whatever they are, they, they are and they're the best of what you could get at that time. Yeah, and that's when you hear you coach that crap on about process, and it drives yeah. things nuts. Yeah. But, it's, but it's true. Yeah, that's <laughs> it. It's just maybe not that word. It's probably not. We not. We need to sort of diverge yeah. away Try from process. That yeah, that's right. Because everyone's fed up. But what does that mean? Stay present. No cliches. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> what was? What was your experience like with the media throughout your career? And with this, from what you know now, would you have approached the media in a different way when you're playing? Uh, no, it was pretty good. I mean, you got, you got, I got, and you probably found this because I was injured all the time, just got slammed. Not probably so much by the media, by fans. You're soft, you're not working hard enough, mm. you're not doing this, you're not doing that, which was frustrating because, you know, you work so hard and I knew how hard I was working. And in the end, you had to let that go. In general, the media, I thought I had a pretty good relationship with the media and was pretty open, mm. open with them. I had a, Great um, piece of advice. Hamish Marsh always, he was a gun. He would, just, he would sit with a Juno, he'd buy them a beer. Um, and I said, and I asked him about it and the Juno's about it. And I said, well, as journalists, you are, you're going to criticise players, but it's hard to criticise a player that you like. Mm. <laughs> so I sort of mm. went down the other path and just was friendly. I mm. always tried to help us and offer as much as I can. If they were going to write shit about me, then they were, and that's fine. That's the job. But they were, certainly weren't as hard as what they perhaps could have been or might have been because you had a sort of a personal relationship with them. So no different now. Try to be accommodating, um, but also don't be afraid to call them out if they're writing crap. Um, Mm. I think that's important as well. That If they're going to write stuff, they've got to get their facts right. And so Mm. there's a couple of times where I did that, said what you wrote's just factually not right and incorrect and it's bollocks. So Mm. I don't know. I'll talk to you anymore. And, you know, 
and you got a couple of apologies, which was which was fine. And then you then you start again and build that relationship again. So I'd always encourage you can't run the media are going to write what they want. So I'd encourage players to engage. Um, no different with umpires and match officials. You engage with them and try to form some sort of relationship. And it's just it's a better way of doing work and just takes another stress off you. You'd hope. What you said there, my experience with the media as well was along similar lines that if once, you know, and I only did it right towards the end of my career is build those personal relationships. So then there's less chance of them sort of going as hard as they would if there's no like personal <laughs> connection there at all. And they don't care what they write. If they offend you, they couldn't care. So yeah, that's, that's incredibly powerful. Um, it, re- it really is. And I wish I did that at the start of my career. So there's more, yeah, you know, just because that's what, being a human being really is all about is those, you know, is those personal connections that you, that you develop. Um, just the one thing that you talked there about um, the injuries and what people would write about you um, yeah, and the media and then the public and what they thought. So, cause I, gosh, I dealt with a very similar thing. And the thing that killed me was when media and then the public would say that I'm soft. That like that just dug me so deep because I knew how bloody hard I was working and I was doing everything I could not to be injured, but then the media would write it, but then switch then the public believed it and yep. it absolutely killed me. So coming back from the injuries you had from a mental perspective, how did, how did you deal with that as well as you could? Cause it's, unless you have injuries like, like you had and like I have, it's hard for people to actually try and put their head in that space because it's <laughs> there's a lot of mental demons that you're sort of bat- battling during it, and then when you're coming back. Yeah, I, th- I think the, the, the one the thing you feel the most is you let your teammates down. That was the thing I found the hardest. That you mm. you know you get going and then bang, you're injured again, and it's like Jesus, you know your team just you let your teammates down. I I mean I used to wind my mother up more than anyone else because she'd listen to talkback radio and get mm. so wound up, and then ring me and tell me what was being said. Mum, I don't want to know that stuff. <laughs> yeah. Just turn it off. Turn it off. I, uh, I just, I was, I just thought I had more to achieve. So I thought, nah, I've, I've got more to do here. I'm, I love it. I want to do it. So I'm just going to keep working, and all I can do is work as hard as I can. And I know the people around me, the Gilberts, that my coaches, my wife, my my friends knew how hard I was working. They're they're, they're the only ones that mattered. Mm. So as long as I was um, living up to their expectations and my own, then the rest of it was noise. Um, and then I just sort of forgot about it. And you'd hope, and uh, and as you know, so when your when your career finishes, even though they're right, how your injury prone is, the more rose tinted glasses come back on, yeah. and they look people look back at more fondly. So you, you you take the crap while you're while you're in the midst of it, and then at the end of it, everyone blows smoke up your bum, and it's not so bad. <laughs> yeah, exactly. In the end, you look you look you look back when you're in the thick of it and you go, well, why don't you look after me a little bit more? Realize that I actually, like I was actually trying, my, I was yeah. doing everything I could. But then, as you said, when you're finished, then it's like, oh God, you really worked hard and had to absorb some setbacks. <laughs> okay. That's yeah, that's nice. Yeah. That's and I think, I think you, you focus on the negative too. There's a, I mean, I mean, I find it now, if I read the, the web page of the Mumbai Indians or the Sydney Thunder, there are just people on there who will bag you regardless of what's mm. happening, mm. regardless of how well someone's playing, they'll bag them. So there's 10%, 20%, that noise is always going to be there. And then you read the other stuff where you get the sense that everyone's actually really supportive and wants you to do well and is, is really rooting for you. So you go, well, why would I worry about the 20%? We're going to be dicks anyway. Um, mm. I wish sometimes those sort of websites would just, fan sites just cut them off at the knees, just yeah. in them off. Yeah. If, you're not, if you're a true fan, you don't sort of write that sort of crap. So now in the email, I wasn't, I wasn't – um, it didn't really affect me too much. The biggest one was just uh, if stuff was written that was really 
incorrect, really mm. false. Mm. Um, and, the, and the hardest one was just, you know, letting your teammates down if you left the tour. That was the hardest. Yeah. That was the hardest. Yeah. 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 I agree. That's, that was one of the, it is one of the worst feelings. One walking off the field, knowing that, you know, you, you have let your team down, but then also like the thing that I always appreciate was when people really could continue to believe in you and continue to know that you're doing everything you could and kept giving you the opportunities, um, knowing that you were ticking every box as you could to be able to be like, to be able to stay on the field and be able to you know, contribute like you knew you could. And it was a good feeling when you could repay that with a good performance or a, you know, something like that. But yeah, yeah, the feeling of walking back to an airport on your own, coming home from a tour early, that's possibly the worst feeling in cricket. Oh, geez, I've, yeah, no, that, I've had that a few times. <laughs> knowing, also knowing the road ahead of you to be able to get back on to, you know, get back your fitness and that. It's like, Jesus, yeah, it's a, it, it's a heavy walk. <laughs> it's a very Jeez. heavy walk. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, okay, this is going to get into other aspects of life away from cricket. Um, and and this from from my experience, cricketers don't really talk about this much in in detail, especially. Um, and this is something that most of us aren't really what. Well, I certainly wasn't that well educated on at all. But managing and investing our money that we make as well as we can is so integral to make the most of, of what we got, what we've got. So, from what you know now, Bondi, from an in, um, investment and wealth generation point of view, would have you have done things differently um, looking back now from where you are? Yeah, definitely. Uh, there's, there's no doubt I probably still do wasted money on stuff that I didn't need to. <clears throat> you know, the latest gadgets when you make the team, you're trying to – sometimes you come into a team, you're trying to keep up with the heavy hitters in your team. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. definitely a mistake. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or, I mean, we – I mean, I know my wife, my wife and I, we're certainly not rich. We've, we've got a couple of investment properties and probably could have bought more, probably should have bought more. Okay. We we had some clear stuff that we wanted to do, though. We We had some goals around travel with our kids. We've got three kids. And we were really clear that we wanted to spend a bit of money uh, traveling. I mean, I didn't travel to I was 17. My wife didn't go to the country at all. And we wanted to um, show them around the world, um, different cultures, different people, different foods. And we're really big on doing that a lot as a family and spending time together in and around the stuff that I was doing. Thought it was important to spend that time together and have done that and certainly don't re- regret that. Mm. Um, but I, but I, th- I don't think that ever changes, Shane. I'm still thinking mm. about, geez, do I need to invest more? Where do I invest? What do I do? Mm. You know, but I, I certainly haven't made um, great decisions all the way through. But, I mean, I can't, like like being a cricketer, I can't look back and go, oh, you know, well, I can't change that. I've just got to focus yeah. on where I am, what I'm doing. And what I'm what I'm going to do now, and that 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 hasn't changed really. Yeah. Yeah. But what you said there about like investment in properties is that more around residential, like rentals and that sort of thing. Yeah, because because that's a because that's a great, a very solid investment. Yeah, we talked a lot as a as a group. I mean, our contracts. I came in when professional cricket came in New Zealand, and we certainly. I mean, until the advent of IPL, we were never going to get rich playing cricket for New Zealand. Mm-hmm. But we talked a lot as a group about uh, going in together and buying property. Um, and we uh, never did, and we probably should have, that, yeah. that sort of stuff. And I think that that probably could be more prevalent now for first-class cricketers in New Zealand um, who could do that, um, you know, because it's not easy to get on the ladder over here now. Um, yeah, and like share market I didn't do know too much about. There's these sort of huge whispers of investments that people went into. You saw the other side. You saw people investing in different stuff and it tanking and losing a whole lot of money. So, I also know that I'm reasonably risk averse, um, mm. probably through what my parents had raised me like that. Um, mm. And so, yeah, I'm always fighting that as well to put myself out there a little bit more. So 
I think that's also comes from the hardest thing for me now is you're in a job that has is fickle. You know, you can lose your job very quickly if your team tanks. Mm. And so I'm a little bit weary that if I put myself out there and I lose my jobs or COVID hits and I can't work, then I'm mm. I can be in the shit real quick. So it's yeah. sort of I don't know whether risk averse is good in the current climate, but I'm still asking those questions. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's <laughs> the unknown certainly is, especially with, <laughs> yeah. you know, gosh, with the, the COVID situation that hit, no one ever thought that anything would, like, would ever live through something like this. Um, but it's interesting what you said there around like some of the, the guys. And, and again, this is just, it's more so making the most of what you got and something as simple as like, you know, the first class cricketers getting together and, you know, because like, different markets are getting harder to be able to get into from a property perspective, like you know, Sydney and Australia is certainly is getting more and more challenging as well. But even to be able to you know, come together and actually pull, pull things to be able to you know, try and you know, gosh, grow, grow it as much as you can as well. Well, these are things that I believe also cricketers need to be like talked about. This needs to be talked about a lot more. So then, you know, people don't come to the end of their career and have just, you know, have not made the most of it. And then are really struggling to be able to know, well, well, why not look back and go, well, I didn't, I didn't probably capitalize on it how I could. And now it's maybe it's a bit too late to be able to see where I can go. Yeah. I think especially with housing, as you said, I think you're going to see more of people going in together and, you know, as you know, in cricket teams, you make very close friends and mm. get to understand. So are they, let's say friends in business, but I'd be happy happy to go in with the friends I've known since school days and mm. buy property and either you just get it drawn up properly but you, you you share the risk and I look at my kids and go Christ how the hell are they going to buy houses mm. you know, they're not they're not going to be able to do it on their own they're probably going to have to go in with a partner or another couple of people as well and that's just the the new reality perhaps there's a chance for me to be able to help them but it's certainly not easy out there it's, mm. it's pretty tough so yeah and I'm, I'm still having discussions with my mates about sure should we go in together and buy a place here or do this or you know, spread mm. the risk and but at least do something yeah but i haven't done it yet <laughs> yeah no because yeah <laughs> it's 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 challenging as you said like especially when things are so uh, fickle like you know being a cricketer is fickle let alone yeah you know, as a coach as well it's fickle so you don't know you know th- something could hit like covid and then it's like well let's it's shut down for a while and having a wife and two teenage daughters like a money hoover that doesn't help either <laughs> Yeah, we keep working. <laughs> um, yeah, um, and also what we um, as cricketers, we're also on the lookout for businesses to invest in as well. And I've certainly, um, yeah, I've always been very um, open to to looking to invest. So, do you have any specific lessons that you've learned from from being involved, um, being involved in or investing in in businesses? No, look, I had. Um I've had a couple of opportunities to invest. There's a couple of things that stood out. One was I had to put probably everything I earned in and I just wasn't prepared to take the mm. risk. Uh, so I was, I was mindful of that. And one of them is going really well at the moment. You go, geez, what if? But it's I just couldn't do it. I did have a shareholding in a steakhouse in Christchurch. So I went in with a couple of other sporting personalities and business people there. And that had taken a little bit of time, but it was going really well. And then the earthquake hit and it got flattened mm. and that was the end of the business. So... Now, that was quite cool to be sort of a passive investor in that mm. and be able to go in there and join and take some people in there. Um, but I didn't know enough about it. So when I finished when I finished my playing um, days, I, I mean, I'd done bits and bobs at university, but I, I went back and did an MBA. Um, I, I, I wanted to have something. I, I always wanted to coach, but I didn't think I'd want to coach forever. And I thought, well, A, it gives, gives me a chance to do something in the business sector and understand um, 
if I wanted to go down the board direction. So I've done a few years on the board of Canterbury Cricket, which was so the NBA really helped. Um, but all, yeah, and, and also, you know, if you want to move into a more admin role after coaching, if your body packs it in as a coach, I, I felt like I needed a little bit more um, substance or credentials behind me. Mm. So that was a, that was two years of full time. And I worked in and around the New Zealand bowling coach job. It was fitting in and around that for about six months. So it was pretty full on. Um, but it certainly when you sit around a table and you've done that sort of work, it gives you a little bit more confidence in what you're doing and stuff. So I'm a, a massive believer for first class players and stuff to get educated. Mm. Um, you know, you talk to players about what are you going to do after you finish playing? You know, cricket finishes at 35. If you're lucky, you've got to do something afterwards. So get something behind you, get educated, um, you know, and then then you've always got something to fall back on. So I think that's really important. Yeah, I completely agree. It's something that needs to be, it actually needs to be a prerequisite that's in every system that you need to, you need to balance the being, a, especially for at the first class level. Um, yeah, international cricket, it's a bit, it's more challenging because you're away and there's a lot more sort of a lot more that you're dealing with, but especially from a first class cricket perspective, like it should be mandatory that every cricketer has to do, has to study or um, has to grow their skills in what are the things that they're, they're passionate in. Um, because as you said, like otherwise they finish whenever they finish, whatever, if you're fortunate, it's, you yeah, it's in your 30, mid, mid to late thirties. If you're, if you're very lucky, um, but outside of that, there's going to be a time when it finishes and you need to be skilled. I, I had actually, I didn't know that you'd done your MBA. That's incredible. That's an amazing achievement to be able to yeah. set time aside and do the hard, hard yards to be able to actually get that done. Yeah, I think, I think, I think you've seen, and you would have seen this, so many people finish. Um, and, and Mitch Johnson talked about recently about being a bit lost when you finish, mm. not really knowing you know, who you are or where you want to go. And I was sort of lucky I wanted to go down the coaching path, but to be fair, there's pretty limited opportunities. There's only so many coaches and so many commentators. Mm. So otherwise, you're then you're in the big wide world. And I, I through only really through my playing, I got opportunities to coach. I think mm. if I hadn't have done what I'd done in playing, I wouldn't have got those chances. It's a longer path of you know, and it's, there's a lot more toil involved. So I got the chance, but I needed a backup. I needed to be able to have something else. Um, yeah, so it is scary, and I think a number of players who finish do find it scary. You know, their the identities around their cricket, um, that's all they know, and so all of a sudden you're in a big wide world and where your mates are now reaching their earning potential, you, you're going back to square one. Um, and you've been lucky. If, if you've been any good, you've been lucky because and been smart, you'll have a decent uh, base behind you, so you, mm. it's not like you're in the, in the pot, but um, if you haven't used it wisely, then it can be frightening. So, um, yeah, what you were saying around getting educated and upskilled, and even, even from a cricket point of view, especially domestic cricket point of view, is just pulling the, just allowing players a little bit more time to have to do that stuff or to do yeah. that stuff could make a really big difference too. Yeah, it's something so simple. Like in the end, if if it's one day a week, um, or one or two days a week, depending on, especially in the off season, like during the season, it still needs to be. Again, I think it should be mandatory. Like at least even during the season, yeah. one day where it's actually life away from cricket. Um, and it's not a, it's not around a golf unless you can become a professional golfer. It's actually an up, something to upskill um, because that's the thing. As a as a professional cricketer, whether you're playing domestic or international cricket, you've got a lot of downtime. There's a, it's a, a truckload. You have a lot of downtime, um, and that's where you know it just ha- it has to be mandatory so that people are pushed into doing it, knowing that at some stage there's going to be an end point from a playing perspective. Um, and you know, all the all the coaches in there who have got have um, who are around have been through that experience. 
Um, and it just, yeah, it, it needs to be, there needs to be a huge push because otherwise we're going to continue to have people who finish playing and they're so, they're so lost because they haven't had something to be able to work through for, um, you know, to set yeah. their, set that foundation for that next phase. Yeah, I agree with you completely. One thing that I've realized is that life is all about how well you bounce back from the setbacks that life always throws you away. <laughs> and you've certainly had your fair share. So do you have a mantra or a saying in your life that helps you bounce back quicker from the challenge that life always throws at you? No, not, uh, not really. I, 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 I hear myself when I parent, hearing my, my, my parents' voices ringing in my head. You know, when you say mm. something and you go, Jesus, my mother used to say that to me all the time. And I'm <laughs> yeah. just repeating it to my kids. Yeah. Um, she always just said, just work hard, be a good person, tell the truth and you'll be okay. That's pretty pretty much what she said. Mm. And so that's all I try to do, just try to set an example for the kids to preach them the same stuff, to work hard, to, to not quit, to talk to them about resilience and standing up for yourself. Um and, and just being a being a good person to other people, being respectful. So that's all you can try to do, and um, that's all you try to do as a parent, I think. So that's pretty that's pretty much it. Yeah, and uh, very three very powerful things, powerful things. <laughs> if you stay true to that, you're gonna you're gonna have a great, well, a very enjoyable life. Um, there's all as there's life's always gonna throw challenges away because that's just that's the well that's the downside. But there's also the excitement in that because you never know what's around the corner. Um, but if you stay true to those three things, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think well, yes, if you do those three things, then you naturally form good relationships with people. And then when the, when the shit hits the fan, you have people around you. Mm. Um, and that's, that's key, I think. So, yeah, look, I've got the beauty of our game, mate, is you make friends and mates from all over the world, from different places. And that's, it's one of the great things of doing our job is you get to fly to different parts of the world and see those friends. Um, I've had my high school mates about 10 of us, you know, since I was 13 and we're still tight. So that's 30 years and they're the ones who keep you real grounded because they know all the secrets. Um, and you know, you know, that when, when stuff goes bad and I've had, you know, a few of those guys in that group have stuff that's gone bad and cancers and stuff like that, but you're there for each other. So mm. that's, that's the critical thing. So yeah, the, those, those behavioral things, I suppose are really important. Yeah. No, brilliant. You said, mate. You have met and been around some incredibly um, successful people. Um, is there one that really stands out to you who's inspired you the most? Um, or there's someone who actually really does inspire you from someone that you haven't met um, that really just, you know, it's someone that you really strive to, to be or strive to achieve? Well, uh, the first the first person was, I mean, you look at heroes. So like, like Richard Hadley was my hero when I mm grew up so he was the first person that, that was my idol I suppose as such mm. not, not only for what he did and, and getting to know Paddle as he got older was all the stuff that my parents talked about professionalism work ethic and all that stuff mm. like he epitomized all that so um, uh, outside, outside of that I don't think there's there's just as you said there's people who are my friends across a whole range of different stuff who you admire for different reasons mm. you admire different friends because they take risks. Mm. You, would, I admire my wife for her patience. <laughs> I admire some other friends for their just work ethic and stickability. Mm. And you take elements of that and go, Jesus, I, I, they're, they're, they're the things that stand out for me across a whole range of different people I know. And you go, well, I know that's not me. I know what my weaknesses are, mm. but uh, I'm, try, I'm trying to take elements of what they do and sort of pull them back into um, what I do. I think that's the... I think that's a big part of self-improvement is identifying mm. 
know, where 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 your strong, but also where your weaknesses are. You know, for me, mm. it's it can be a lack of patience and snappiness. You know, I get told that by my wife <laughs> because she's the complete opposite. Mm. <laughs> so, so the, the having, but again, having people who will tell you that um, and give you that feedback is is powerful. So you get mates who will tell you, mate, you need to pull your head in, or you need to do this. That's really mm. important. So, they're, they're, I, I admire people. The friend, people I admire the most tell me exactly how it is. Mm. Winger, Sean Bradstreet yeah. tells me how it is. I love that yeah. about him. Um, it's great to be around people who will call you out on your on your BS. So, I like being yeah. in and around people like that. The thing that continues to stand out to me, Bondi, and I've um, got to know you well in the last few years, especially, is your continued self improvement to be able to push the limits and evolution of you as a as a person, as a coach, and obviously as a, as a player. That's the reason why you're able to you were able to scale the heights that you did. Is a continued like evolution. You never sort of sat still to go. I'm going okay. It was always how can I get better? What can I do to be able to continue to to grow? Um, you know my skills that I've got. Um, and it's 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 an amazing it's an amazing thing to hear, mate. Because there's a lot of people who, yeah, of course they they might have done it in one part of their their life and their career, but to be able to continue to see um, the evolution and how you're continuing to to dig into all these different resources around you, that's and that's all you that's all we can really do. I, I believe is just continue to be the best better the best version of yourself as much like every time. And as a head coach, you just get in those you, you get in the people to paper over the cracks. So it just deflects yeah. from your just yeah. deflects from your weaknesses. Yeah. And I really I, I really enjoy working with different people. Um, as you, you know as a new coach sometimes you, you know I know I definitely came in a bit hot but you bring in I'm um, I'm not one of those ones who thinks I just want a coaching staff of just everybody that I know. Mm. I like having to come in with fresh people, fresh ideas and build relationships. Um, and then your job as a leader is to try to get the best out of people or give them a forum to be valued and speak. Um, no different, I think, to captaincy on a cricket field is your job is to manage people. You, there's some people in your team you might think, well, I'm not convinced about him, but your job is still to try to get the best out of them on the field mm-hmm. and give them confidence. So no, no different in coaching. And then you say, if you can get those couple of people who tell you like it is, then you don't miss stuff. You, you, you can, you can, um, you know, behaviour that's perhaps letting you down or letting your team down or pissing people off. You can get on top of it really quickly. But if you've got no one who's willing to do that, then that's when you're in trouble. I think so. I think it's important to have those people in, around you who can have those really honest conversations. No different in a cricket team. Sometimes when you've got a, and you would have played in, you played in some amazing cricket teams where. People know what's wrong or this behaviour in the team that's not right, but no one wants to call it. No one wants to be the person to address it. Mm. And when you've got people in your team who will address it, you have a lot of admiration for those people because mm. everyone else is thinking it, but at least someone's <laughs> saying it for you. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. It's so it's so powerful. I love reading books and learning. Um, so can you give me like one or two of the best books um, that you've read that, ha- that you've read that have had a, an imp- a big impact on you? Books. Um, I, I, re- I re- I've read a few sporting books. I read Phil Jackson's book recently and I really enjoyed mm. that. I like the element and even watching obviously Michael, the last dance, yeah. the, 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 I mean, I, I've always been very black and white and, and I think as my coaching career has evolved, I've, I'm uh, learning to operate a lot better in gray because that's what you have to operate in. And I think that's mm. probably been one of my big improvements. So reading, Know, sacred hoops and talking about you know allowing Dennis Rodman to go to Las Vegas and get hosed. I'm not sure I'm that great yet, but it was interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was just so interesting about how he managed 
the team, but I really loved, and I, I'm a huge believer in the, the philosophy of the team, you know, about getting the best out of the, and working together towards a collective goal. I really enjoyed that. I read Bill Bill Walsh, who was a coach of the 49ers. Mm. I think the score will take care of itself. Mm. So that process stuff again. And he just talked about organisational excellence and getting guys every day to turn up and be, you know, doing everything to a level that was outstanding. Sort mm. of acting like a champion before you were. So I really enjoyed that sort of book as well. Mm. Um, Legacy, um, enjoyed Legacy. I read a book about yeah. um, leading from the shadows. So it's about you're not necessarily the CEO, but being the second in charge and how you can influence and mm. have, be a person of uh, influence and power from the from the assistant. So as an assistant coach mm. and someone who's been the assistant coach and still is, as I still think you can have a huge influence without being in the hot seat. Mm. Um, good for me to be in the hot seat to understand those pressures, and I think you have to do both. Mm. But I also think that um, you may never naturally be a head coach but can be an, a very, very good assistant and have a huge influence on a team. So I enjoyed stuff like that. So yeah. I'm not a great reader. I find I get a couple of chapters in and can get bored, um, but I try to take bits out um, around different bits that I think applies to me. And and then I watch docos. I'd much prefer The Last Dance and watching yeah. stuff than read stuff. But a few of those books I've really, really enjoyed. Yeah. Yeah. It said there around Phil Jackson, like I found, like I read um, you know, his book as well and, and watching The Last Dance, just how he – how he just approached things differently to like to anything I'd sort of been around up until I sort of read that book was just around, um, you know, connecting the team together, like the collective energy and, you know, all the, all those different philosophies is, is you know, very different to a normal cricket environment that I'd been around. Um, so I found it fascinating to be able to see and how, how you can use different, um, you know, different things that are around the world to be able to really try and bring everyone t- together as a, as a collective unit. I think the beauty now with, um, you know, the Netflix and the Amazons, you've, there's so many sporting docos where you get the inside on when you're watching all these coaches at work. It's bloody fascinating yeah. because you what you think they're like and what they are are two different things, but you also yeah. get to see the way they react, behave, and you can take uh, elements of what they're doing and apply them to yourself, which I think is brilliant. I, I yeah. really enjoy that sort of – I've been watching Leeds United. I've watched Tottenham. I've watched Man City. All these great coaches and seeing the way they interact, the conversations they're having, really interesting stuff. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, it's amazing the insights that that people are able to um, get now um, to be able to continue to learn. As you said, for even from a coaching perspective, just those, those resources that are there available to see how the best the best people do it. Yeah, it's very yeah. very amazing cool. access. Yep. Well, Bondi, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to be on this episode of Lessons Learned with the Greats. You achieved things that cricketers only ever dreamed of. And now we've all been so fortunate to hear these amazing insights that we all can learn from for the for the future. Thank you so much for sharing all of these incredible experiences with us. And we are all are that much richer for digging deeper into the minds of one of the greats of world cricket. Appreciate <laughs> you it. You read that exactly how I wrote it, eh? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's my words, mate, not yours. <laughs> Thanks, mate. <laughs> for more episodes of Lessons Learned with the Greats, head to t20stars.com forward slash podcast. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.